Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on this earth that we desire besides you. Our heart and our flesh may fail, but you, O God, ever remain the strength of our life and our portion, our inheritance forever. All we need is you. All we need is you. All we need is Jesus. And we thank you that in the gospel we have him. If the gospel says anything at all, it's this. We get God. We undeserving sinners get God. We get you, oh God, back in our lives. We who were at one time estranged, enemies, hostile, on the run distant from you and from your promises have been brought near through the blood of Jesus. We have peace with you now, God, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Our hearts are at rest because Jesus now is in our lives. We don't need to run anymore. We don't need to chase after this and that, that girl and that guy and that money and that business and that car and that material possession. We have you. We have who we were originally made for. We have the source of our being. We have the one who knit us in our mother's womb. We have the one who gave us life and breath in our lungs. The one who presently sustains us by the word of his power. We have you. We have the alpha and the omega. The first and the last. We have the one who's, who's been the same yesterday, today, and forever. We have our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, we thank you. We have so much to lay hold of as we're gathered in here today. We thank you for this time. We bless you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Can we give the worship team one more hand, please? Thank you. Thank you for serving us. Thank you for each and every one of you, our brother Joseph and our, our brother Courtney back there and just everyone else who's gathered here today. I just wanted to just recognize and acknowledge everyone in our midst. It's a little interesting time uh, that we're in, in our calendar year. I know that many of you are, are students. We got some grad students here. We got some undergrad students here. We got others who've just entered in perhaps into your, your professional pursuits here. And so we're going to take um, a pause break just for this Sunday uh, from our book, our series through the book of Philippians to, to really wrestle through um, an area that's apparently based on what I'm getting in my times with y'all in my office as we've made appointments and just throughout the week, just connecting throughout the city. A lot of us are really wrestling and wanting to know just how to find God's will. And what is God's will? Is it this school? And if it's this school, is it this degree or this field or this major? If it's relationships, is this the one? Or if we're already in them, should I be remaining? And some of us are entering into career tracks or professions, or we, we see it. It's right around the corner, and we're wondering, is this the direction? Some of us 
for the first time, we're taking seriously church and we're wondering, how do you ever decide? How do you know what's the right move? And so regardless of who you are, a lot of us are in crossroads. And you know how it is at crossroads. Do you go straight ahead? Do you, do you go right? Do you go left? Do I return back where I came from? And so it could be very anxiety-inducing for a lot of people as far as how to discern or, as it's often put, how do I find God's will, Neb? Maybe you've had that question posed to you or perhaps you've talked about this among yourselves. How do I find God's will? But sometimes the way we pose the question could be a little interesting, can it? Because it's almost like, have you found my keys? You see, it's like, have you, have you seen them? <laughs> right? It almost sounded like I really meant it, didn't I? <laughs> have you found God's will? I, I didn't know he lost it. Right? I, I didn't know that God lost his, his will. And, and when you find it, please let me know. Right? Sometimes we go looking, if you will, for God's will the same way pagans, <laughs> non-believers, look for God's will. And we got different ways. We rub things. And then try to see if, if, if now we're, or we, we try to be at a certain place at the right time and see. I see that billboard. It just kind of looks like. Or we, we end up resorting to all sorts of strategies that we just come up with on the fly to be able to find, I'll put that in quotation marks because I question the way that we even pose it, to find God's will. Interestingly, from a Christian worldview, when we allow the Bible to weigh in, on this subject of discerning the will of the Lord, God has a sort of different take on how he helps us arrive at just what his will is for our lives or for your life. And my hope is by the time we're through today, we're going to, if we're not there already, if we didn't walk into this chapel with this, that we're going to leave this place with this. Amen? Do I got you? All right. Romans chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, turn together with me to Romans chapter 12. And what we're going to do is begin reading verses 1. Romans chapter 12. And we're really only going to look at two verses. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. If you're there, just say amen. If you're not there yet, just say not yet. Don't be ashamed. Romans chapter 12, ah, we're helping them out, Joseph, huh? <laughs> Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. God's word reads, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Father, we pray that as we're about to devote these next few moments to your word, my prayer is that you would be with us and that you would assist me in the preaching of it 
and my brothers and my sisters in the hearing of it. Jesus, you said, apart from me, you can do absolutely nothing. And so I'm counting on you, Holy Spirit, to be present during this time so that we might greatly profit from your word. Help us to not be merely hearers of your word, but also doers so that we might be blessed in our deed. We thank you for all of this, and it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. This is a particular um, unique point in the book of Romans. Romans is comprised of 16 chapters. Paul is attributed for having written the book of Romans. And Romans is 16 chapters. This is a unique, pivotal section in the book of Romans. If you ever had a chance to read it or study it, you'll notice that this is the hinge point. So if you will, like on a door, right, everything hinges on Romans chapter 12, right? That's why you see the word therefore right there in verse 1 of Romans chapter 12, okay? In, verse, in chapters 1 through 11, what we see is Paul taking the pains to unpack the glories of the gospel. It doesn't seem to be under any pressure to rush on to anything else. Chapter by chapter, for 11 chapters, he unravels the glories of both the person and the work of Jesus Christ and how it benefits you and me. And so the believer, as he's reading Romans 1 through 11, is just getting lost in the goodness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God the salvation of God, the blood of Jesus Christ, and how all of that is a benefit for me. And so it's not even until chapter 12 that the Apostle Paul even begins to talk to you and to me as far as what our part is in all of this. I mean, those of us who are application-driven, like, get to the point, Pastor, right? Like, how can I apply this to my life? What's its relevancy, Right? How does this work for me here and now? Man, you would have been impatient with Paul because he took 11 chapters to just carefully unpack and unravel the glories of the gospel. It's not till right now that you're finally about to see what your job is or how this applies to your life or what the implications are of the gospel for your life. Not till chapter 12. That's what therefore means. Anytime you see the word therefore, remember what I said? Ask yourself, what is it? If you've been with me, come on. What is it there for? Right? You want to know what it's there. It's there for this reason. Because we just got the gospel for 11 chapters. That's why it's there. Right? And so he says now, in light of this gospel that I pack, unpacked, right? some of us have a very truncated gospel. And Paul says, I want you to see, like a diamond, set to the light, depending on where the light is hitting on that diamond, you're going to see different facets of that diamond. And therefore, there are going to be different things to appreciate about that diamond. The gospel is like a diamond. And depending on where the light is hitting, you and I are going to see different facets of the gospel and be able to appreciate Jesus even more. You thought you love him now? Just imagine what, what more you learn. You, you, you can't love him enough. There's always something about him that you're like, wow, I didn't know. <laughs> or at least I didn't know it on that level. That's the gospel. And Paul says, I appeal to you, verse 1, therefore, in light of the gospel, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. What mercies? Eleven chapters of mercy. When he says, I appeal to you by what? Mercy. 
What mercy? Well, weren't you with me for these 11 chapters? All that mercy I unpacked. I appeal to you in light of that. If you've been with me up till now, if Paul is saying, if you've been tracking with me up to this point, I haven't lost you, then now listen up because I'm about to make an appeal. I'm going to urge you. I'm about to drive. It's like I'm about to put my foot on this pedal. You ready? Hold on to something. I'm about to drive this point of 11 chapters home now. I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God. Okay, okay, okay. To what? To what? To present your bodies. You've been hearing for 11 chapters about how another person has presented his body on your behalf, but now I'm about to talk to you about how now you and me are supposed to be presenting our bodies. That's what the gospel is all about. It's about how this one who came from heaven presented his body as a living sacrifice to the Father on your behalf and on mine so that you and I might be brought into relationship with him. That's the gospel. But now what he's saying is if you got that, the fact that Jesus, God himself, came in the flesh in order to present his body for the joy that was set before him, Hebrews 12, 2, he what? Endured the cross, despising its shame. He says here, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Interesting. You've never seen that before, have you? Living sacrifice together. It's almost like a conundrum. It's like they clash. Like, can the two exist? It almost sounds like oil and water. It's like living sacrifice. Every time I see sacrifice in the Bible, it's blood. It's gory. It means death. It means finality. It means the end. It does not mean living. Last time I saw a sacrifice, that was over. It was one and done. But here, it's interesting. He talks to these Christians, me and you, and he says, we're to do what? We're to present our bodies as what? A living sacrifice. Living, not a dead sacrifice. A living sacrifice. That's important. Very important. Galatians 2.20 says this. I have been crucified with Christ. You know that verse? I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, all right, stick with me, Paul says. Verse ain't over. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Huh? I thought you just said you've been crucified. I thought you're dead. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, you see, but who in me? Christ, who is now at, at alive in me. And the life which I now live, now that I've been crucified, but Christ is now in me, alive, the life which I now live, I live by faith in him, the one who presented his body as a living sacrifice. I live by faith in him who loved me and gave himself as a ransom for me through his death, through his presentation of his body. So there's a death and a living. And so Paul, even though he's saying he's dead, what part of him is dead? The part of him that has to die in order for what God wants to emerge, to emerge in his life. What part of me and you has to die? The part of us that has to die is the part of us that needs to go so that what God wants out of our lives could begin to emerge. And what he's saying here is, if God's mercy means anything to the believer, it's going to result in this at least. You're going to want to present your life, your body, as a living sacrifice. There's nobody in the world who can get the gospel, 
understand the grace of God in Jesus and what all Jesus endured and went through on their behalf and remain the same. The very thing that calls forth is for my life to be in his hands. That's what he's saying. He says, I want to present my body as a living sacrifice. You see, olden times when sacrifices took place, it it was one activity and that was it. But for the Christian, what happens? It means every day I'm dying in order to live again. Paul says, I die daily. You know that verse? I die daily. But he's alive. Exactly. What that means is every single day I am presented with opportunities in my life where I get to look at areas of my life that are in line with Jesus or not. And where they're not in line with Jesus, got to go. It's got to go so that Christ can emerge forth from my life. And that's why I'm in every circumstance and relationship and situation in my life that even requires decision making so that I can arrive at that place where I get the privilege of being able to see one more thing about me go so that one more thing about Jesus can show up. You with me? That's what it means for it to be a living sacrifice. It's not enough for me to say, I did that at camp when I first gave my life to Jesus 10 years ago. I did that at some crusade when somebody asked me to come forward if, I've, if I'm ready to receive Jesus. No, no, no. This isn't about something I do one point in time. This is something we do regularly, the Christian life. Every day I wake up, every day I get a chance to see by God's grace is an opportunity for me to present this body all over again to the one who created me and doubly redeemed me. That's not something you just do once. It's something you do again and again and again until he returns. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 and 19 and 20, you're no longer your own. You know that one? It's just before the verse. He says, know you not that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, next verse, you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. What's that price? The blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, was that word therefore again? Therefore, glorify God with what? Your body. Verse 20. Glorify God with your body. How do I glorify God with my body? By presenting it to him as a living sacrifice. By presenting it to him as a living sacrifice. By, by not holding it to me. It's like, no, this is my life. I want to live it as I please. I don't want to give it to him. I only get one of these bodies. And I only get one lifetime with this body, and I'm going to give it to him. The Christian longs to do so. The Christian desires to do so. It's no longer about me and my self-preservation. It's about him and what I get a chance to see him do with this life of mine. And that's what brings excitement to the believer. For the non-Christian, it brings nothing but fear because they don't know. But for the child of God, it's like, what better hands can this life be in than the one who's calling for it? After all, look at what he's already done. He who didn't even spare his own son, same book, but freely gave him up for us all as a living sacrifice. How will he not also with him freely, graciously give us all things? And I'm going to want to hold back my life from him? You see, are you beginning to notice that God for God What's more important is not the school, it's not the person, it's not the house, 
It's not the part of town. It's not the city that I'm supposed to move to. It's not any of these things that we're looking for. It has to do with me. For the Christian life, much of the way you discern the will of God has less to do with God giving you and me what we want or giving us the answers that we think we need, and it has far more to do with us becoming the right person. To use relationships, for example, instead of using my energy and my time finding the right one, I'm supposed to be using my energy and my time being the right one. And that same principle applies across the board in any area that demands me knowing what's his will. And a lot of times we spend so much energy and time on that and we fail to realize God's saying, my priority is you. That's easy. I could tell you the school, SMU, UTD, whatever, UNT. I could tell you that. I could tell you the person. I could tell you what city you're supposed to. I could tell you what church you're supposed to be a member. I could tell you what you should be doing with your life. What my priority is you. It's you giving me that life. You surrendering that life to me so that I can change and work on you, you see. You see, we don't want that. We want to remain as, as a shell, left alone, untouched, but we want God to give us the desires. Of, and God says, no, that's not how it works. I need in. See, unless the grain of wheat, Jesus says in John 12, unless the grain of wheat falls to the ground and what? Dies, it abides how many people? Alone. But if it dies, it bears how much fruit? Much fruit. See, it, that's how we want. We want to be that grain of wheat that sits above ground. And God says, I need to see this thing penetrate the dirt. I need to see that life break so that something can come forth. And the way that takes place is by us presenting our bodies as living sacrifices to God so that he can use our lives however he pleases. So no matter where you are in your life, what station in life you're in, what season of life you're in, what is our lives ultimately about? It's about God, here I am. I'm here to live for you. I'm here to surrender this life all over to you. I want my body, not in my hands or anybody else's hands for that matter. I want it in your hands. I want you to lead me. I want you to guide me. I want you to be the shepherd of this body of mine. I don't know what to do, but you know what to do. I don't have the wisdom, but you've got it. I don't know my next step, but you do. And that child of God surrenders. You see, when God's mercy touches you, when God's grace reaches you, that's what it calls forth from your life is, what do we sing? I surrender. I surrender all. And that's what he's saying here. We present our bodies as a living sacrifice. But notice what he says. Two things. Holy, holy and acceptable to God. When I, when I give God my life, when I give my, my body, which means my life, to God, because I believe he's capable of doing far more with it than I am with it in my own hands, when I give my body to God, guess what? It's holy and it's acceptable. It's the most holy thing you could do because the word holy means consecrated. It means to be set apart for a purpose. God can't begin to work in my life until and unless my life is in his hands. A lot of us are still waiting on God moving. We want to see God show up. We want to see God's hand. 
We want to see him move in our life. We want to have a story and a testimony to tell. And God's like, I need it first. He's like, no, no, you can't do anything with it, being over there and me over here. No. I need your life in my hands. It takes faith. Peter couldn't even begin to see what Jesus was capable of until he got out of the boat. He's like, no, just do it. I'll believe you. No, 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 no. Sometimes the only way faith can show up and you can truly know what God is capable of your life is by getting out the boat. Jesus said, if it's, Peter said, if it's you bidding me to come, I'll come. It's me, Peter. Now come. And so long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, he was able to stay afloat. You see, God can't begin in our lives. So many of us, we, could, we can go forward with our lives, get degrees, get professions, start making money we never imagined we'd be able to make. Get into relationships, have marriages, have kids, have homes, but our lives are still in our hands, and we're wondering what's going on. And God is saying, you can make progress in all of these areas with your life still in your hand. When when Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing, he doesn't mean you can't move an arm. You can't go. There's plenty of non-Christians doing a lot of things in this world, right? So what does he mean by nothing? Nothing fruitful, nothing eternal, nothing God-glorifying, nothing that ultimately is going to make much of Jesus. Nothing in that sense. Without me, you can do nothing of those proportions. And where does that begin? It begins with my life in Jesus' hands, in God's hands. It begins with my life in God's hands. Why? Because that's holy, and it's, he says, and it's acceptable. He goes on and he says, which is your spiritual worship. That's an interesting phrase that he says there, spiritual worship. It could also be translated there in verse 1, rational service. This is your rational service, believe it or not. Or it could be spiritual worship. You see, worship isn't necessarily what we do on a Sunday for 30 minutes or so. Worship is what I do with my life. I could get here and sing and dance and jump and clap, and my life could still be in my own hands. You with me? In other words, true worship is what I do with my life. Now, There is a place for worship in song. Uh, God himself commands it. But what God wants is for that worship in song to be the expression of something that's already there and true about me. And that is that my life is in his hands. I'm not just singing about my life in his hands. My life is actually in his hands. So when it comes time for me to sing, I'm only giving expression and language with melody in the back to what's already true about me. But what God doesn't want to see is when it's only here, but it's not here. Jesus said in Matthew 23, these people draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, he says. Speaking of the Pharisees. Notice the contrast that Jesus makes there. They draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts, their lives, are far from me. Oh, Lord, May that not be me. I'm always wondering every time I land on that passage and look at it again. I want to draw near to God with my lips. 
but I also want to draw near to him with my heart at the same time. Why can't it be both, right? But in order for it to be both is what Paul is saying here, God is saying here, is I got to, be, I got to make the main thing the main thing. I got to major on the majors, and the major is presenting my body as a living sacrifice. That's spiritual worship. Spiritual worship isn't I got to get on the worship team. I got to get, I got to get on, the, on the band. No. That's wonderful when it's an expression of our lives. I got to make it to that conference. I got I to see who's coming through. No, no, no. There's a, you can pack a stadium, and people can just sing and shout and clap and sweat. And if God were looking, it could be possible that people's lives are still in their hands. It's amazing how much you could do with your life still in your own hands. It's amazing. And so God help us. Amen? God help us so that we be people who, not, who worship God in spirit and in truth. As Jesus, Jesus said, look, woman, um, <laughs> I know you, you, you're saying you guys worship over here on this mountain. We worship. Look, I'm just here to tell you it's no longer going to be about location and places, about this mountain or that. In fact, the Father is seeking. In fact, now the Father is seeking those who worship him in spirit and in truth. The time has come and now is where the Father seeks those who are prepared to worship him in spirit and in truth. That's true spiritual worship. That's true rational service. That's the kind of service that makes sense to God. When he sees it, he's like, it's a sweet-smelling savor in his nostrils. When he, he just smells, he just takes it all in. Like, That's good. Why? Because their lives are in my hands and they're singing and they're worshiping, just to add to on top of it. It's like, I see their hearts are in my hands. They're trusting me. They're looking to me. They're no longer counting on themselves. They're counting on me. Look at them. That pleases God. It moves the heart of God when he sees his children counting on him for stuff. Where they realize, you know, I may have started out my prayers saying, give me, give me, give me. Tell me, tell me, tell me. Is it her? Is it him? Is it that? Is it this? And then I realized, you know what? What's more important is, is my life in his hand to where I almost, got, I almost forgot to ask for whether it's her or him. You know what? And I'm about to get to it. A lot of times, what really helps and ends up being the answer that we were looking for initially ends up showing up after we give God our lives. The Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord, and then he'll give you the desires of his heart. Notice uh, sometimes we, we swap that, don't we? He says, notice, delight yourself in the Lord, and then he'll give you the desires of your heart. You see, because what happens is when I start delighting in the Lord and in the things of the Lord, he kind of does a rearrangement like a chiropractor on my shoulder on my desires <laughs> to where not only am I beginning to delight in the Lord, he's rearranging my desires so that they fall in line with his desires. So the very things I start making requests for are the kinds of things that are a part of his heart. That's why my prayers get answered, because they're in accordance. Whatsoever you ask, you ever heard that? Whatsoever you ask, it shall be done. It's like, whoa, are you sure about that, Lord? Yes, he's sure, because there's an assumption under that promise that your heart is going to be aligned with his purposes. God never intended that our hearts remain as they are and we still pray and ask. James said, you ask, and you don't receive. Why? He goes on, next verse, because you ask amiss, he says. I love that verse, amiss. 
It's like the only time in the Bible it's found amiss. Look it up. <laughs> you ask amiss. In other words, it's all, we got to start all over with them prayers. It's like it's issuing from a whole nother heart. He's like, first sort out some stuff with you and your father. And then come back to him. And you start noticing, wow, prayers start getting answered. Why? Because my heart now is aligned with his. It wasn't about me finding out this and that necessarily initially. It was about me making sure that my life is in right relationship with this God. Of course he could do anything. That's no thing to him. What he wants, though, is my life in his hands. That's spiritual worship. Spiritual worship. But in order for this to take place, notice something negative he mentions in verse 2, last verse. Do not be conformed. He's not on to some different topic. He says, don't be conformed to this world. You see that there? Don't be conformed to this age. Don't be conformed to this world. Literally, in the Greek is, don't let this world squeeze you into its mold. Don't be some piece of clay for this world to shape you however they please. And you just come out the assembly line as just one product among other products that the world wants to churn out. It says, no, 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 you're special. You're unique. You're a child of God. Your identity is not there. It's with him. It's in him. You don't get your cues from the world. The world doesn't shape you. God shapes you. The world doesn't shape you and form you. God forms you through his word. And he says, don't be conformed to this world. A person who makes it a point to be conformed to the world is not going to be somebody thrilled about presenting their body as a living sacrifice to God. That's not going to thrill their heart. Right? They're going to be like, what? What kind of message is this? Why? Because what's the world about? What is it that Paul fears is going on in the world that he's concerned about me? How come I can't be conformed? What's going on in the world? Because the world has a different value system. It has a different worldview. It has a different philosophy. It has a different way of living that's contrary to the purposes of God, to the will and the ways and the word of God. And so for me to just take it all in as far as what the world has to offer and at the same time try to live for the Lord, it just can't happen. It can't happen. He says you're not going to make it anywhere. You're not going to make any progress so long as you continue to allow the world to shape you to conform you to its ways because it's got a, a direction. It wants to take your life, and God has a direction that he wants to take your life. A lot of the things that the world <laughs> celebrates, God boos. A lot of the things that God promotes and says, the world says. And so if you don't know the difference then you're going to just be taking it all in together. And you're wondering why you're not making it anywhere. Because you went to church. You just bought a Bible. You went to the Christian bookstore. You're following some preachers on YouTube. You're streaming something on podcast. But at the same time, you haven't done nothing about your relationship with the world. It's still coming in like it was before you were a Christian. And you're wondering why you're exactly where you were to begin with. And Paul says, look. In order to make progress in our spiritual growth, in order to get somewhere, 
in our relationship with God. In this world, you can't continue to roll with the world like you once did. You can't be conformed to the world. Paul, John says in 1 John 2.17, love not the world, right? Neither the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust, uh, the, the, the lust, the, the lust of, of the flesh, and the pride of possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires, but those who do the will of their Father abide forever. That's what John says about the world. See, we can't be conformed to the world. We can't be conformed to its ways. We've got to be conformed to our God and to His ways and His will for our lives. So then how do you get not conformed to the world by what you do with your life? And Paul ends this way. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Instead of me preoccupying myself with, what does the world think about this? Before I make a decision, I want to know, does my, if, if, if social media finds out about the decisions I'm making with my life, what kind of approval ratings would I get, right? If I'm writing off of my social media feed to know what kind of a person to be or think or believe, then I'm in for it. Rather than being that kind of a person, what kind of a person should I be? I should be somebody who is being transformed by the renewal of my mind. Notice the being transformed. It's passive. It's passive. It's being done to me. It's happening to me. And, and notice by what means? Through the renewal of my mind. My mind needs to be transformed. It needs to be changed. It needs to be renewed. I can't stay where I once was. That's how transformation takes place in my life. And what is the primary means of transformation? The Word of God. The Word of God. The way that God brings about transformation through our lives is through the Word of God, which is why I stay in this book. It goes with me everywhere, this book. Not, not my smartphone. This book goes with me everywhere. I'm in it all throughout the day. At any time I need to, I need God's Word. It's bread from heaven. Jesus said it's the truth that sets you free. Jesus said, it's the one who, it's the one, my disciple is this one who continues in my word. That's my disciple. It's the sanctifying agent in God's hand in my life. You've got to have God's word. If you don't have God's word regularly in your life, if you don't have a Bible that you are regularly in, let me tell you this, you're being conformed by the world. There's no, see, there's no neutrality. That's what Paul is trying to point out. There's no neutral place. Like, I don't particularly like being conformed to the world. That's not what I want. But at the same time, I'm not necessarily all into God's word. Um, I'm just here to tell you that there's no neutral spot. That's, that's what Paul is trying to say. If, if God is not regularly getting into you and transforming you and conforming you, you are being conformed by the world. And the fact that you're not aware of it is even more concerning. So Paul says, look, the way to not be conformed by the world is not, is not this. I can't. I can't be conformed. No, world, stay away. No, that's not how it operates. The way to say no to that is by saying yes to this. 
I don't sit up in my house or go throughout my day saying, I can't, I can't look at that, I can't watch this, I can't, I can't. No, 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 no. I'm not constantly on defense. I like to play offense in hoop and in the spiritual life. (laughs) It's draining. (laughs) We got to get the ball at some point. And so I preoccupy myself with the things of God. That's how I say no to the world. You see, you preoccupy yourself to where there's no room left over. The world can try to get in, but I'm not letting them. I'm making it increasingly difficult for the world to get into my life and have an influence on my life because God's all over it. You see, that's how you do it. You don't just sit around and say, world, stay out. I can't. I can't. That's not how you do it. The way transformation takes place in your life is through the word of God having a primary place in your life. That's when the renewal takes place. And so the things that you and I initially were opposed to and were turned off by, guess what? Now that our mind is renewed, we now love the things that God loves. We're for the things that God is for. We're excited about the things that God is excited about. And we're opposed and appalled by the things that God is opposed to and appalled by. Why? Because our agenda is now his agenda. Our heart is his heart. Our will is his will. He's aligning us, just like your cars need alignment from from time to time. You're noticing you let go, and that thing goes right, and you're wondering, it's about that time. In the same way, even our lives from time to time need alignment. But you can't take it to the shop. Where do you take it to? You take it to God in prayer and to his word and to a community that's about this so that you can get aligned. That's why we come to church. We need realignment. We need realignment because there's just some stuff that goes on during the week that gets us out of alignment. And I need to come back among God's community again, be like, all right, now I'm ready for Monday all over again. That's when you're able to discern what is that good. Notice, what you and I really wanted doesn't come till the end of this passage. You notice that? Not at the beginning. Notice how God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. As far as the heavens are from the earth, so are his ways from our ways. Were it up to us, we would have started with, what's the will of God? How do you find it? And notice God says, "Um, I want to get to that. But uh, before I do, this may catch you by surprise, but I want your life in my hands, first and foremost. And I'm not going to promise you, this isn't going to be about you give me your life, then I'll give you what you want. No, no, no. It may come or it may not. I know but I'll let you know in my time. But I want you to commit your life to me no matter what. You don't know what's going to happen as a result of it. That's what he says. And he says, then you'll be able to discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect. It's amazing. It's amazing. Sometimes I remember kids, I'm, you know, I'm, as a parent, my kids, you, you see this in parenting. They'll come at you. You come home and they're like, I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I just got in. Unpack that a little bit for me. You got to understand I'm going to be in trouble. I need this. I need this. We got to go right now. Don't take your shoes off. We got to go buy this. We got to buy this. All right. I'm going to need this. All my friends are like, whoa, 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 whoa. Unpack it one at a time. All right. Let's sit down here. I love you too. How was your day? And we hug and we cuddle a little bit and we have a little bit of time and I reassure them and I calm their anxieties. And we have a little good time. I even share a little, little funny story from the day or we just have a little bonding time. And then all of a sudden, after about 15 minutes, 
he got up, she got up, or they got up. And then they, they walk off. I'm like, well, I'm like, that kid just forgot. What happened with what they just stormed at me with when I first came in? I guess it wasn't all that important. It's like, wow, all they need, I just needed to just give them that time. And sometimes that's how we are. We just storm into God. God, you got to tell me. You got to tell me it's her. You got to tell me it's him. You got to let me know. I got to know it's that school. I got to know it's that job. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Come here and sit on my lap a little bit. Just, just a minute. Let me tell you a little something. Let's talk. Let's fellowship. Let's have a little time together. And before you know it, he's like, I thought you were going to tell me. What? Uh, I forgot. Sometimes, even when we requested, we find out once God meets it himself, 